Before you go, kids, I just want to say I appreciated your little pastor appreciation. That was wonderful. I've been wondering what you guys have been working on in Sunday school, and that was just great. We really appreciate it. I think I can speak for both Tim and I as I say we appreciate not only your thank you, but also the opportunities we have to teach and to serve you. So, kids, you are dismissed to your classes. And everyone else, we will be back in Genesis chapter 4 if you want to turn there this morning. As you turn there, uh, the other day my uh, daughter Sadie reminded me that coming up in December is her birthday and that she's going to turn eight. That means I've been a father for eight years. And uh, my four children have brought a lot of joy into the lives of my wife and I. Uh, however, as any parents know, uh, kids also can bring a lot of frustration as well. Uh, a writer I enjoy reading named G.K. Chesterton once said, Original sin is the only doctrine that's been empirically validated by 2,000 years of human history. By looking at the world around us, we can see sin. If you need more convincing, just spend an hour with a two-year-old. You'll quickly see that his point is true. Um, the reality is, is that children do not need to be taught to be disobedient. I've seen this with my own children, and recently my wife and I have been impressed with some of the creative ways that our children find to frustrate us. One of the things that often frustrates us the most is their attitudes. There are times when our children may be doing something that we ask them to do because we are making them do it, not because they want to do it. For example, they may be obeying us by cleaning up after themselves, but oftentimes their attitudes are dirtier than the mess that they made. Another time they do this is when they're giving an apology to their sibling after hurting them. Sure, they are saying something that sounds like an apology, but their uh, heart is not in it. You can tell that they do not really want to apologize. Um, their attitudes betray their heart, even if their actions may not. And so often, disobedience comes down not only to one's actions, but also to a person's heart. And I want to keep this in mind as we return to the story of Cain and Abel. As we look at Cain's offering and ask, what did Cain do wrong?, I want to look not only at his actions, but also at his heart. Last week, we looked at the story of Cain and Abel, and we saw how the promise of Genesis 3.15 connects to the story in Genesis 4. We saw how the type of the two seeds is played out in the lives of Cain and Abel. I also mentioned last week that we'd talk about two questions this morning. First, I want to look at what Cain did wrong. Why was Cain disobedient? And second... I want to look at the promise of Genesis 3.15 and show how the promises of Genesis are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We'll start with the first question this morning. And as I said last week, the question of Cain's disobedience is often the most studied part of Genesis 4. Many people have thought and written about what Cain did wrong. And as we return to Genesis 4 this morning, I want to study this question in depth. I want to show you why I believe Cain's disobedience was a matter of the heart. So if you would, please turn to Genesis chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 3. Genesis 4, 3 says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and their fat portions. 
And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. The story starts with both Cain and Abel bringing offerings to God. The text does not explicitly state this, but we can assume that they are bringing their offerings for a reason. Possibly God had asked them to bring them offerings from the things that they had produced. There are many examples in the Bible of people bringing offerings to God. And the reason people bring offerings to God throughout the Bible is to acknowledge that everything belongs to God, to thank Him for providing for them. The action of bringing an offering is not to provide the Lord with something that He needs. God did not need the food that Cain and Abel brought Him to survive. Instead, the action of bringing an offering was to acknowledge that what they had belonged to God and that the things that they were given were given to them by God. An offering is an external reflection of what's inside a person. It's a way of saying that everything I have belongs to you, God, and without you I would have nothing. As we look at Genesis 4 and see how God looks we see how God looks favorably on Abel and his offering. But the passage also tells us that God had no regard for Cain and for his offering. The rejection of his offering made Cain very angry. And the passage tells us his face fell. As we initially read the account of Cain's offering, we see primarily his actions. We see the way that he makes his offering to God. And as we study Cain's actions, it may not initially be clear what Cain did wrong. When we examine both Cain and Abel's offerings, there does not seem to be a great difference between the two of them. Some have theorized that Cain had brought the wrong kind of sacrifice, that maybe he was supposed to bring a lamb like Abel did, or some kind of blood sacrifice. Others have theorized that Cain did not bring his best to the Lord. And this may be possible, but it's hard to say that this is exactly the problem. There's very little said about Cain and Abel's offerings in Genesis chapter 4. As we look at what kind of offering Cain brought, Oftentimes, we want to read back in the Levitical law. We get these idea of bringing a lamb from the Levitical law and from the rules later given to Moses. And I believe there's two problems with this theory. First, these rules are given um, after the time of Cain and Abel. So unless God had given these rules to Cain and Abel as well, how could he hold them accountable for Levitical laws given to Moses, laws that they did not have? Also, Grain offerings were a part of Levitical sacrifices, and in many cases, they were just as acceptable as the offering of livestock. As we study Cain's offering, I believe that it's hard to exactly pin down something wrong. And this should cause us to dig deeper, not only to examine Cain's actions, but also to examine his heart. We know that God considers the heart of a man, not just his actions. We see this truth when God commands Samuel to look for a king to replace Saul. As Saul, Samuel examines David's brothers, the Lord commands him, saying, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. A man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God looks at our hearts, and as Cain and Abel bring their offerings to God, He's not only looking at the offerings they bring, but the hearts that they bring them with. As we turn back to Genesis 4, we see that God confronts Cain and asks him why he's so angry. If you go to verse 6, Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, it says, 
The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the, do- at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God warns Cain to resist sin, and Cain would be wise to follow this advice. If Cain cares about what God wants, he will change what he does. If Cain respects God, he'll fix his mistake. An example would be like if your boss came to you at work and said, I need you to correct a mistake that you've made. For example, if Pastor Tim came to me and said, you've messed up, you've made a mistake, I need you to fix that mistake. If I respect Tim and value what he wants, my response would be to go fix that mistake. I would repent and I would undo what I did wrong. If I respect Tim, I would fix my mistake. But as we continue on in Genesis chapter 4, we see that Cain does not respond to God's warning this way. Verse 8 tells us, Cain spoke to his brother, Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. As we read about the confrontation between God and Cain, Cain's response betrays his attitude. He is defiant, and he replies to God's question by saying, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain's response has gone down as one of the most remembered lines in Scripture, and his response betrays his heart. Cain has no desire to fix his mistake. In fact, Cain goes on to give in to that sin and murder his brother out of jealousy. Cain responds to God's warning by murdering his brother and responds to God when God confronts him with a prideful attitude. Both of Cain's responses show that he has no respect for God or what God wants. If Cain would have respected God's authority and valued what God wanted, he would have resisted sin. He would have fixed his mistake. But that's not the response Cain has. If Cain had the right heart, he would change his ways. If Cain had the right heart, he would have an attitude of repentance. And the story of Cain and Abel would be radically different. Cain would have fixed his mistake. But Cain did not do this. He did not repent. Cain's heart was not in the right place. Cain did not please God, not simply because of the sacrifice he offered, but because of the heart that he offered it with. The psalmist says almost exactly the same idea in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, verse 16 through 17, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Cain's offering was supposed to be a reflection of his heart, but the state of his heart is betrayed by his attitude and his response. God does not simply desire the act of giving an offering. As the psalmist says, God desires the right heart. We read on in Genesis 4, and we see what ultimately happens to Cain. Genesis 4, 13-15 says, God said, 
Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So far we've studied Cain's offering and how it was rejected by God because of the heart that he offered it with. But as we compare Cain and Abel, I think we should also ask, why was Abel's offering accepted by God? This is a much easier question to answer because the author of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews chapter 11. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, we'll see this account of Abel. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, tells us that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Hebrews tells us that the difference between Cain and Abel was faith. While their actions were similar, their hearts were not. Abel offered his sacrifice by faith, but Cain offered his sacrifice with a sinful heart. Abel's offering was acceptable because he had faith. As we read on in Hebrews 11, we read of another person who is commended as being righteous because of their faith. Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, Enoch pleased God. And as we read on, we find another verse that gives us insight into Cain and why he could not please God with his offering. In Hebrews 11, verses 5 through 6, it says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he reward those who seek him. Cain could not please God because he did not have faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We do not entirely know the full details of Cain's offering, but we can confidently say that without faith, no sacrifice Cain would have offered would have been accepted by God. As the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. This reminds me of a situation I often faced at one of the places I worked in college. When I was in Bible college, I worked at a place called Canfields, and we sold hunting equipment and camping gear. Interestingly, our logo was simply the name Canfields, written in cursive in yellow. This was a constant source of problems for us, because just a couple miles down the road, was another large sporting goods store that sold similar items to us. You may have heard of it, it's called Cabela's. For anyone who's been to Cabela's, you'd recognize their logo. It's just their name written in cursive in yellow. You might begin to see the problem that we faced. Regularly, we would have customers come into the store trying to return hunting or camping gear that they thought they had purchased from us. They claimed that they had purchased it and unfortunately, oftentimes we couldn't even take the return. 
Customers would get very upset with us because they could never understand why we wouldn't take back the gear that they thought we had sold them. But sure enough, by looking at the receipts and even the bag that they brought the returns back in, it was plain to see that they had purchased it from Cabela's, not Canfield's. No matter how hard they tried, that receipt would not let them return their stuff to Canfield's. This reminds me of the story of Cain and Abel, because as we look at Cain's offering, we realize that without faith, Cain's offering could never please God. No matter how hard he tried, that sacrifice would never please God. The point of offerings is to be thankful for what the Lord provides. As I've said before, an offering is the external reflection of what's inside a person. It's a way of saying, all I have belongs to you, God, and without you I would have nothing. But Cain is not thankful for what God provides. He does not respect God. We can see this in the way that he responds to God. I believe Cain made an offering because he had to, not because he wanted to. It reminds me of the example I gave in the introduction of my children. Oftentimes, when my kids apologize to their sibling, they say the right things, but their heart is not in it. They are apologizing because they have to, not because they want to. This is the difference between Cain and Abel in this passage. This is the reason why God was not pleased by Cain. Abel's offering came from a willing heart, a heart made willing by faith. But Cain was simply doing it because he had to, not because he wanted to. He did not have faith in God. He did not really care what God wanted. The difference is faith. As Hebrews clearly tells us, Abel offered his sacrifice by faith, and Cain, with his wicked heart and lack of faith, could not please God. Faith is the difference between Cain and Abel. Now this leads us to another question about Abel. If Abel pleased God by faith, what did Abel have faith in? And this brings us full circle back to our sermon from last week. Abel had faith in the promises of God. Abel had faith in the promise of Genesis 3.15. Abel's faith was in God's promise. And this idea of faith in God's promises comes straight from Hebrews 11. Before the writer of Hebrews commends Abel for his faith, he defines faith in Hebrews verses 1 through 3. If you would turn back to Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 3, and we can see how the Apostle Paul defines faith. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their condemnation, commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of the things not seen. Abel had faith in God's promises, faith in the things that he had hoped for, in a promise whose fulfillment he may not have seen, but he believed would come. Abel had faith in God's promises, in the promise of Genesis 3.15. As we talked about last week, the promise is twofold. First, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy of war between the two seeds, of conflict between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. But it is also a prophecy about one who would come, about a promised descendant who would save 
the people from their sin. Genesis 3.15 says, as a reminder, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Abel had faith in God's promise to send a Savior. Those that came after him received more prophecies about the one who was to come. And we today look back on the fulfillment of these promises. But Abel's faith in the promise that he was given was enough. As the author of Hebrews tells us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Abel's faith assured him of the thing that he hoped for. By, hate, by faith, he hoped for the coming Savior. As Hebrews 11 says, that faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abel had faith in this promised descendant, in the true seed of the woman who would save humankind from their sin. If you remember our study of the word seed from last week, you'll remember that it can mean either one descendant or many descendants. And we looked at how the many descendants in Genesis 3.15 was a prophecy that was lived out in the story of Cain and Abel and in their children. But I also want you to look at how Genesis 3.15 points us to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 points us to Christ in three ways. First, Genesis 3.15 tells us that the promised Savior is a descendant of the woman. Christ fulfills this part of the promise. Christ is a descendant of Adam and Eve. Throughout the Bible, the biblical authors carefully record genealogies. And one of the purposes of these genealogies it's to show us that Christ is the promised descendant of Adam and Eve. The Gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy to trace the lineage from Adam to Christ, to show us that he is the descendant of the woman that was promised. The genealogies prove that Christ fulfills the promise that the Savior will be a descendant of the woman. Second, Genesis 3.15 tells us that the promised descendant will face conflict and will suffer as the verse says, the serpent shall bruise his heel. Christ fulfills this part of the promise as well. Jesus' ministry begins in conflict. Jesus' ministry begins in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan. This temptation demonstrates the conflict between the two of them, between the promised descendant of the woman and between the serpent. This conflict escalates to the very crucifixion of Christ. This is the final strike from the serpent. And for a moment, the final strike even looks successful. Christ's death on the cross is foreshadowed by Abel's death at the hands of his brother. But Christ's death is not final. His resurrection from the dead proves that. As we think back to the promises of Genesis 3.15, we can observe that a blow to the heel is survivable, but a, to be crushed in the head is fatal. And this is the third way that Christ is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. The verse promises that he, the descendant of, wo of the woman, shall crush your head. Again, to be struck in the heel can be survived, but to have your head crushed cannot be. And this is the final part of the promise. This is the promised descendant who will have victory over the serpent and over death. Christ's resurrection begins the fulfillment of this promise. The author of Hebrews talks about this, about the victory of Christ over Satan. If you turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 2, we can see how Paul describes this victory of Christ. 
over Satan, and over death itself. We can see how this is fulfilled by Christ in Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Christ is the promised descendant and has victory through conflict over the serpent. Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of Genesis. Cain and Abel foreshadow Christ's fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And Genesis 3.15 introduces us to an idea that is developed through the rest of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is like a landscape covered in fog. Throughout the Old Testament, the promises of God are slowly revealed one by one to show us the Savior that is promised to come. As the promise builds, it's like the fog rolling away from the landscape, revealing what it once hid. The rest of the book of Genesis begins to roll this fog away. Genesis continues to develop the promises of God. We see more promises and types that give us a clear understanding of his promised descendant. Christ is the fulfillment of these promises. As we've been in Genesis, we've talked about these types, about the type of the two seeds, a type that's played out in Cain and Abel and many stories in the Old Testament. And we've talked about how this promise points us to Christ, how this type of the two seeds point us to Christ. And I want you to see the promises in Genesis because the promises are the, of the Old Testament are the foundation that the New Testament is built on. We spend most of our time last week studying the type of the two seeds. But Pastor Tim has also spoken about another type in the book of Genesis, the type of Adam. Adam foreshadows Christ because he is similar to him in many ways. And we see the Apostle Paul develop this idea, the idea that Adam was a type of the one to come in Romans. If you turn to Romans chapter 5, we'll see how the Apostle Paul writes his explanation of the gospel. And he builds his ideas on the Old Testament. He shows how Christ is a fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. How Christ is the true person foreshadowed by the types of the Old Testament. We see this explicitly in Romans chapter 5. And if you would, please turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Paul is writing directly here about Genesis chapter 3. Paul is writing about how sin entered the world through Adam, and how death came through sin, and that sin spread to the whole world. But he goes on. In verse 14 he writes, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even though over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. 
But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Death may have entered the world through Adam because of his disobedience, but Paul goes on to say that grace entered the world through Christ because of his obedience. Paul is showing us another type. He's showing us how Adam foreshadows Christ. Paul is showing us how Christ or how Adam points us to Christ and how Christ succeeds succeeds where Adam fails. Romans 5:19 tells us for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so that by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul recognizes that Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. Paul is showing us how Christ fulfills the promises of Genesis. And this is important for us to understand because Paul is linking the promises of God to the gospel. The gospel cannot be separated from the promises of God. The gospel is the good news of this promised Savior, of the promised descendant of the woman who was to come. The gospel message of the New Testament is founded on the promises of the Old Testament. Both the writers of Hebrews and Romans demonstrate this to us. The writers of Hebrews also tells us that Abel had faith in these promises. And this is the reason why Abel pleased God with his offering. Abel's offering was acceptable because he offered it by faith. This is the difference between Cain and Abel. This is why Cain could not please God. Abel offered a sacrifice by faith, but Abel did not, or but Cain did not. Abel's heart was in the right place, but Cain's was not. Not only does Hebrews tell us that faith is the difference between Cain and Abel, but we can clearly see it in the story of Genesis 4. If Cain had faith in God's promises, if Cain had respect for God and what God wanted, his offering would have been acceptable, and Cain would have never murdered his brother Abel. The story of Cain and Abel point us to Christ, and the promise of Genesis 3.15 that they live out, the prophecy of the war between the two seeds, points us to Christ as well. It foreshadows Christ's life, death, and resurrection. The story of Cain and Abel here in Genesis is here to show us that God's word is true and that he keeps his promises. And ultimately, we see that God keeps his promises by sending his son Jesus, who fulfills the promise of Genesis 3.15. Not only does the story of Cain and Abel point us to Christ through the conflict of the two seeds, Cain and Abel's offerings point us to Christ. This is because the offerings are not simply about the actions. They're about the hearts behind them. Abel's offering was more acceptable because of his faith, and Cain's was not. Abel's faith in the promises of God, the promises that point us towards the fulfillment of those promises. We must see the promises of God throughout Scripture. The promises of God bring life. If Christians, we are people of the promises. And this is why we must see the promises of God throughout Scripture. We have life because of the promises that are fulfilled in Christ. As Paul says in Romans, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. As we continue through the book of Genesis, I hope that you continue to see the promises of God. Too often we disconnect the Old Testament from the New Testament. Too often we disconnect the Old Testament from the Gospel. But the Bible tells us one story. It tells us a story that begins in Genesis and leads us to Christ. 
Every verse and chapter of the Bible, every part of the book of Genesis contributes to the story. The story of Cain and Abel helps us understand the big story of the Bible. The story of Genesis and the story of Cain and Abel point us to Christ. And this is why we must see the promises of God in Scripture. Because these promises point us to Christ. If you would join me, we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the time and your word this morning. I thank you for the book of Genesis and the promises that it gives us. Thank you for the story of Cain and Abel and the way that it points us to these promises. Father, I pray as we read Scripture, as we continue to go through the book of Genesis, that we can see these promises and see how they connect to your son Jesus and his fulfillment of those promises. Father, I just pray that each one of us understands the gospel filled in Scripture, how every part of Scripture points us to Christ. Just pray that we read this and that, again, as we continue through Genesis, we see the promises. In Jesus' name, amen.